Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay-up letters. Millions, I say. Then it's up to the 20,000 new IRS enforcement agents to find you. Why the IRS targets you and not millionaires? Well, because millionaires have tax lawyers. You don't, you'll pay up. Plus interest and penalties. You need Tax Network USA, and you need them now. Tax Network USA has brilliant war room strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. Like a preferred direct line to the IRS, they know which agents to deal with and who to avoid. It's not all bad news for you because Tax Network USA learned of a special limited-time IRS offer. They're willing to waive $1 billion in penalties if you qualify. So schedule your free confidential consultation to see if you qualify for this limited-time IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit tnusa.com slash justnews. That's tnusa.com slash justnews. Hello, America, and welcome to a Friday edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where today, yes, we made it through a busy, sometimes frustrating week, right? Those images from Afghanistan still trouble so many of us, and there are so many Americans still left on the ground, so many Afghan friends, good people, who did help the United States during its 20-year war that are stranded, that our hearts and prayers and thoughts are with them until every one of them is safe. But we've got a really, really great show for you today. I'm really excited about it. Dr. Weifeng Zhang is joining us. He is an international expert on China, and particularly what he's created is an index. It's very exciting, where he studies all the rhetoric of the communist government officials at every aspect of Chinese communications, and then creates a projection of what might be coming over the horizon for China. What are China's next most important moves going to be? He uses artificial intelligence. He gathers this information up. He makes projections, and he has some pretty bold projections about where communist Beijing is going in relationship to Taiwan, in relationship to Afghanistan, and all those rare earth metals we were talking about. Really a fascinating thing. We're going to have a great deep dive today on China and why the current posture of Beijing and its communist government matters to the future security of our great country. So we're going to have that in a few minutes. Now, before we get there, uh, I wanted to point out a couple of stories today. We continue to find out who and what types of Americans are left behind in Afghanistan. And um, my good colleague Sophie Mann confirmed that there are nearly 30 Sacramento area students that weren't evacuated, are still trapped there. Very important to keep an eye on that. Secondly, overnight, there was a British commander, the man who oversaw British forces in Afghanistan for a long time. He had some pretty sharp words, Colonel Richard Kemp did, for President Biden and his withdrawal and the way the withdrawal was done from Afghanistan. I'm just going to read a few comments of what Richard Kemp told Breitbart News last night. It basically ceded a huge amount of authority and power and influence in the world from the West to the authoritarian states of Iran and North Korea, particularly China and Russia. Now, he called Biden's exit the greatest foreign affairs and military catastrophe since World War II, without a doubt. He said it was far worse than the Vietnam fiasco 
war, and certainly worse than 9-11, which may be the result of intelligence failure and possibly could have been prevented. But it was a surprise, he said, and the Afghan exit was a, quote, self-inflicted wound, the result of a deliberate policy decision against the advice of his generals. It's a real blow for American prestige, said Colonel Kemp. Pretty remarkable words that rattled through the entire national security establishment globally. Richard Kemp's a very respected figure, and uh, he and many other British officials have been very harsh in their assessment of the president. You can see that frustration boiling over even to some in other governments as well. I hope you got a chance to see our special last night on Real America's Voice. If not, you can see it online at any point uh, today. Just check it out at justthenews.com on the TV tab. That's the place to find it. And then I want to point out one more important thing. A little bit of politics. It's about policy in Congress. Many Americans that I've talked to, particularly Republicans, very concerned about the $3.5 trillion spending package that the House has already approved that Joe Biden is behind and that is now pending in the Senate. Well, Joe Manchin, keep in mind, the Senate is 50-50 with Kamala Harris as the deciding vote. So that means Democrats have just a one vote margin, right? Just a one vote margin. If they don't have that one vote, they can't pass things. Well, Joe Manchin gave a speech Wednesday night in West Virginia to the West Virginia Chamber of Commerce. And he said, I want to put a pause button, hit the pause button, to stop the $3.5 trillion liberal agenda spending bill from being passed in Washington. I'm just going to read you a couple of the things he said. You can see the YouTube video we posted it there for you. I would ask my colleagues in all of the Senate to hit the pause button on the $3.5 trillion, Manchin said. Let's sit back. Let's see what happens. We have so much on our plate. We really have an awful lot. I think that would be more prudent, wise thing to do. There are just too many things the country is facing, like runaway inflation, he said, and he warned. And I know he said of his own Democratic caucus, they're going to go nuts right now because of what I'm said. But I'm thinking of it from the standpoint of where we are as a nation today. What an interesting thing to say. A member of Congress who actually is concerned about the nation before his party. This is a major wrinkle in the Democrats' plan. It is roiling Washington, at least the Democratic side. The Republicans are quite happy, to be honest with you. But Joe Manchin has become one of the most important deal makers in Washington. This could change. You always got to be careful, right? But right now, this seems as though it is going to be a roadblock to the progress that the Democrats were trying to get on their liberal agenda. And the question now is, will the progressives, the AOCs, the squad, people like that, will they turn on Joe Manchin? What an interesting dynamic to have to watch here in Washington. All right, folks, those are the big headlines I wanted you to pay attention to. I hope everything is going well. And what I would say to you is we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Dr. Zhang will be here. You're definitely going to want to hear what he has to say. An important conversation about China right after these commercial messages. All right, folks, as we draw near to another critical election, it's not only about casting your vote. It's about elevating your voice, making your voice be heard. AMAC is more than just a senior discount organization. They unite like-minded patriots like you and I, committed to preserving our cherished values and actively opposing the leftist agenda that's sweeping across America. Just look at their recent victories. AMAC members helped to push forward an investigation into practices that inflate drug prices. They successfully defeated ranked choice voting in order to protect traditional voting methods, and they've also helped block a federal takeover of elections. 
As AMAX membership grows, Washington is listening. Every new member strengthens this movement. If you love America, visit AMAC, A-M-A-C dot U-S slash Just News to become a four-year member for just $30. That's a great discount. AMAC is not only better for America, it's better for you. Membership gives you access to the AMAC magazine, free Social Security and Medicare guidance, money-saving discounts, trusted news, sweepstakes, and so much more. It's a community, not a service. Take advantage of our election year sale. Four years for just $30 at AMAC. By joining over 2 million Americans, they can't ignore your voice in Washington anymore. Join now at AMAC, AMAC.us slash Just News. That's AMAC.us forward slash Just News. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And today, I know we spent a lot of time in Afghanistan the last week for all the right reasons, but I want to keep our eye on another always emerging threat, and that is China. We always need to be cognizant of what's going on there. And uh, today, I am so pleased to be joined by a real expert, somebody whose work has been uh, really instrumental in creating horizon tools that American policymakers and intelligence analysts and others can use. His name is Wei Feng Zhang. He's a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, just down the street here in Washington, a renowned China scholar. And one of the things that I like most about his work is that he created a thing called the Policy Change Index. And we're going to ask Dr. Zhang to describe what that is, because it's one of the great horizon watching tools we have in our databases and in our arsenal. Dr. Zhang, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. It is an honor to have you so. So I, this policy change index, those of us who've covered Washington have monitored it. It is such an important tool because it uses machine learning to analyze basically all the propaganda going on in China and give us some predictions of where the communist government, the communist party in China may be going. Tell us what inspired you to create it and how it has helped all of us to stay on top of what's going on in China. So I actually had this idea from uh, over 10 years ago, but I couldn't do it when I first had the idea, which is when I first left uh, mainland China. I was born and raised in China until I finished uh, college. But then it, when I first left mainland China and went to Hong Kong for my master's degree, and by the way, Hong Kong was relatively more free back then. Sure. Uh, very different story. Very different, yeah. Yeah. But what really um, gave me like a sh- the shock of my life was to realize that I did not know, you know innocent students and residents of Beijing, they actually died in the Tiananmen Square massacre. Because uh, growing up, I, I was told by Chinese propaganda, it was you know, a minor disturbance, and so nothing bad really happened. And so that's when I really realized after I left mainland, the uh, propaganda environment, that propaganda is really effective in controlling information, changing people's mind, actually. And that turned out to be really important because before the Chinese government changes its policy, it would typically try to manipulate people's mind, manipulate pop- popular opinion in preparation for the new policy. So that, that's when it gave me the idea. But because it's so effective in manipulating public opinion, it must be indicative of the government's action. And, but it's only really after I came to the United States and started to you know, learn all these techniques about machine learning that I realized it's actually now, uh, nowadays much easier to do to just write some programs to analyze Chinese propaganda and then from there to make inference about because what they're saying this now, what they would be doing, doing next. So that's what's underlying the policy change index. 
Well, it's such an important tool. So now, now that we have this, and it uses machine learning too, which is very cool because all of our brain power plus machine learning can give us a great amplification of data, particularly when there's large loads of it. Given what you're now analyzing, what are some of the trend lines that you think are on the horizon? Where, where is China going with places like Taiwan, What the continued crackdown in Hong Kong? What are some of the predictive models showing for how the Chinese Communist government may act over the next three, six months, a year? So based on what we have seen so far, I think there's really an underappreciated aspect of the trends that is actually going on in China but we don't uh, emphasize it enough, which is that the turn away from pro-market reforms in China really happened before President Xi Jinping. It happened in the previous, under the previous uh, administration, President Hu Jintao's term. Right. And uh, that's what we saw from the policy change index, because back in 2004, the Chinese propaganda had been preparing for this kind of left turn in policy leading up to what later became the harmonious society of the President Hu Jintao. And the idea, basically, whatever the Chinese government says, is what it doesn't have, right? So when it says harmonious society, it means the society is not harmonious. And then the solution they were pushing out back then was to say, uh, you know, market reform is probably not that good. Uh, you know, state-owned enterprises, they could serve for much larger purposes. And so all these trends going away from the economic reform path initiated by uh, Deng Xiaoping was actually starting uh, almost 20 years ago now. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely. And so what we saw, however, we we do need to recognize that all all this change has been much more dramatic under President Xi Jinping. So that's what really caught people's mind outside of China. But we need to recognize that it started much earlier on. And so that's going to be very important in terms of understanding what China is moving towards in the uh, next steps. Because uh, under President Xi Jinping in the last few years, it sort of drastically enhanced the emphasis on state-owned enterprises and how, and how important it is for China to be a leader on a global stage, which is why we are seeing all these aggressive foreign policy uh, instruments like the Belt and Road Initiatives. Right. And so this, all this is in the, on the horizon, and I think it will be creating more concerns for the global economy than it, it is already now. And describe what those concerns are long term. Obviously, China wants to supplant the United States as both the military and economic superpower of the world. They clearly would like to have their currency as the world currency. Most of the West has, for the last 25 or 30 years, been addicted to the opportunity to have markets in China, right? Cheap labor sending goods over here and a large 1 billion plus audience being able to be sold to American products. Why now, after all that 25, 30 year kind of belief that China was going to be a a good trading partner, are people seeing threats to the economy from the way Beijing is acting? I think we should not have been so surprised, actually, in my view, uh, had we recognized the nature of the Chinese model. Because actually, ever since China joined the WTO, coincidentally, we see, at least coincidentally, maybe intentionally, which is less, you know, we don't know as much that China has been more, much more actively pursuing bad policies, bad policies, in, at least in our, uh, from our perspective, including you know, the much more uh, heavy use of forced labor, labor camps, including what's happening in Xinjiang now, and also you know, uh, stealing intellectual property from uh, foreign companies. And so there are all these, and also, like, like I said, emphasizing the state sector rather than the private sector. 
And so all of these is actually giving China an edge in the trade liberalization. Because when we think about trade, right, the, the, the typical model would be to say each country will be producing what they can produce the best, right? That's yeah, the competitive advantage. But you, you, can, you can also look at it from an institutional level, which is that all these bad policies, they actually uh, were, have been very good for China's manufacturing sector. And so there's also the reason uh, or an incentive for the Chinese authority to enhance those policies, just like one con- a country would enhance uh, or focus on certain goods. And so I think that's a trend that's uh, coming and uh, we, we, don't really, we have not really noticed it until the very recent years. But all, all these are coming up and it's important because in, Chinese, in the Chinese government's perspective, that's something that the, uh, the Chinese leaders hope would be an equal to the, what we consider the better capitalist model. So that's what when you said, John, that China has the ambition to overtake the U.S., I think the ambition lies just as much in the institutional level than in the, uh, the pure material uh, right. economic level. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And as we look at this, what levers do policymakers have? Was, it, was the approach of Donald Trump in the last year or so of his administration of limiting access to American capital markets, is that a good solution? And what are some of the solutions as, as someone who has studied this and is analyzing China's every move? What are some of the tools America can have to protect our interests, our capitalism, our supremacy in the world? That's a great question, John, because what we have witnessed in the past four years under uh, former President Trump's administration was actually trying the opposite of what I call the romantic engagement with China. Mm-hmm. So the romantic engagement is, has been going on for 20 years. It has. On the WTO. Right? So, but the, the problem with the opposite, though, I think under President Trump was uh, we have seen a lot of blunt force measures like cross-the-board tariffs on Chinese goods. The hope back then when President Trump started this was that that would force China to change its model or abandon all these bad policies right. that we just discussed. It actually did not work, right? Because if you think about all these U.S.-China official meetings in the past recent months, including what's happening in Alaska, and also the Deputy Secretary of State, uh, Wendy Sherman, when she went to Tianjin with the uh, Chinese officials, the demands made by the Chinese side did not actually include uh, asking the U.S. to take up those tariffs. You know, so that means that that's not really hurting them. What they demanded was to, for example, release the daughter of the uh, Huawei founder from right. uh, in Canada. So, right. so they they, are, they were asking what hurts, and uh, actually, um, obviously, tariffs did not hurt. That brought us to now the dilemma for the U.S. because you are in this economic engagement so deep, and now you know a divorce is so painful. So, how can you find a sort of a bliss point or the the sweet spot? in between the two extremes. I think that's the biggest challenge for U.S. policymakers. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And um, on this very show, about a year ago, we had the former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, who said the single biggest mistake he made in his public policy career was assuming that uh, once we opened up capitalism to America, that it would react the way that many of the Soviet Union republics did. And he said that was wrong. The The Chinese are patient and they, they, they were never going to assimilate our model. Their goal is to assimilate our markets to their most important interests. And he had some regret in one of those things that he said is, you know, we had more leverage when we had most favored nation trading status reviewed every year and approved by Congress. 
Can you see a scenario where America could fall back to that if the frustration or the aggression of China becomes too much? I don't think that's very feasible. Uh, the rule, for example, governing WTO was that you would need the consent from all the other countries except China to actually kick China out. That's right. So, well, so once China's in, it's in. So I, yeah. I think that we have a certain, at least certain degree, no doubt, past dependency in terms of uh, what instruments we can use to deal with the threats coming up from China because we can't go back to the past. It's not possible anymore. Such an important dynamic. So I want to pivot in a second to the forced labor camps and the Uyghurs and what is really one of the tremendous human rights uh, abuses in the world right now. And it just doesn't get the celebrity of prior uh, human rights abuses, right? Whether they were, you know, in Rwanda, I mean, remember all of the different television Hollywood campaigns that uh, took a look at things going back to the killing fields in Cambodia. But before we turn to I just want to ask one one other question. If you were sitting across from President Biden right now and advising him on how to navigate this relationship with China, what would that advice be right now? So I think the first thing I would say is to take off the tariffs uh, immediately because they are hurting U.S. consumers. They're hurting U.S. businesses every single day without achieving any goals. And those were in place, have been in place under this new administration, which is so they're basically keeping President Trump's policy intact and under the uh, pretense or the excuse of reviewing it. So after eight months in office now, they are still reviewing it, almost eight months. And so so I think that's not effective because it's hurting ourselves without uh, achieving our goals. And the the second uh, I would suggest was actually to go back to create the transparency using uh, government policies to try to provide a transparency into exactly what ways our values, our liberal democratic values in our society are compromised by Chinese influence. And then you address those issues instead of using blunt force measures that are not going to do anything. On the question of Taiwan, all the machine learning that you're doing, all the over the horizon analysis, what is communist China's intent with Beijing in the next three to six months? Interesting you ask that because that's one of the predictions we made over the past few years. So a year ago, shortly after COVID uh, subsided in mainland China, at least for a while, right. what we detected in propaganda was China's unusual emphasis on the military power, which is something very rare we haven't seen for many years, that China all of a sudden put something relatively minor about China's military power on a very prominent place in the official newspaper, the mouthpiece. And so what that suggests, actually, is that uh, some sort of a military actions might be on the horizon. And, of course, back then we didn't know whether it would be, you know, the Taiwan Strait or, you know, China-Indian border. But we made that prediction just a few months before. You may remember right after the election, 2020 election, China started to fly all these jet fighters across Taiwan Strait as a show of force. So that actually just happened after not long after we made the prediction. And so now... You mentioned Afghanistan at the beginning of your show. I think that's a very relevant point because after the uh, chaotic withdrawal, as in my view, and uh, people, it, it frustrates people on, on many different levels. But one thing that uh, now is being questioned is the U.S. commitment in and elsewhere overseas. Would the U.S. abandon Taiwan just like it did uh, Afghanistan uh, should China attack the island? And so I think that's actually a, a valid concern because uh, credibility matters in foreign affairs, right? It's just the thought that it might abandon Taiwan would give China a lot of confidence. 
And so I think it's, uh, what virus mean now is whether the U.S. could actually reaffirm its commitment to allies so that we would not get into this catastrophic conflict with China in the Taiwan Strait. Wow. What an important dynamic to be watching. I'd like to flip to the Uyghurs and the forced labor camps. As someone who grew up in China before coming here, obviously embraces freedom. How big a human rights issue are these camps and the treatment of the Uyghurs? And as someone who has had both perspectives, being in China and now being on this side of the ocean. Yeah, so I think the history of forced labor in China is very long. It's just as long as the People's Republic, the regime of the People's Republic itself. Yep. Because one of the very early prisoners of the labor camps is actually the last emperor of China in the, from the Qing Dynasty, who was captured by the Russians, and then the Russians gave him back to Mao, and then Mao just immediately sent him to the, one of these camps. And so it has a long history. But like I said, though, after China joined the WTO, the practice has been much more widespread. just wrote a recent piece on um, Discourse magazine with my colleague, yes. uh, Christy McDaniel, and w- in which we sort of documented this trend uh, or the history and how large the scale is, because there are various estimates about how many Uyghurs are now in uh, concentration camps, and the numbers ranges from 800,000 to as many as like two or three million even. Wow. And so the scale, now how much is the, how large is that scale? Because China has about 12 million uh, Uyghurs in the population. And so if you incarcerate like 2 million of them, 3 million of them, it's equivalent to about 20 to 30% of the population. Right. So that's a large scale. So the problem is obviously very serious, but the challenge for the West or for all our liberal democracies around the world was that they are struggling to come up with the solution because even just we look at the words coming out from G7 countries' official statements about Uyghur uh, forced labor. Right. And what we saw was, interestingly, that ironically, that when a country sells more stuff to China, their words are softer already on Uyghur. So we are not going to talk about actions. Just words are already softer when you have higher economic interests in the Chinese market. That's so interesting. Uh, you don't see a resolution or enough. Uh, are there any levers right now that would get the Chinese to reduce it? So if I understand you correctly, too, after we got them into the WTO and we normalized trade relations, permanently normalized them, you're saying that the Uyghur labor camp population grew, right? The Chinese became more aggressive once they got what they wanted? Yes, and uh, there are exactly correct. So before the Uyghurs, by the way, Tibetans are also in those labor camps too, yep. uh, not just the Uyghurs. And the practitioners of the what's known as Falun Gong, the religious sure. group, yep. persecuted, and many of them are also in uh, forced labor camps. The In terms of policy, though, so in principle, the U.S. authorities could request if they suspect that some goods are made by certain factories use forced labor, they could actually request to have auditors go in to, and check on them but the request had to be approved by the Chinese government. So what happened in the past was that it would take about 10 years for Beijing to yeah. write back and say, yes, please come. And so after 10 years, everything is uh, all Yeah, it's already up. changed. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So I think the ineffectiveness of state actors or uh, government actors in this respect. And so a possible solution Christine and I uh, looked at in the piece was to say whether civil society could play a bigger role. For example, we have seen that, uh, you know, the chocolate industry, for example, right, is notorious for using child labor. And some chocolate uh, companies, they come up with some ways to sort of trace the origins of product. 
and to try to make sure to demonstrate credibly to their consumers that it doesn't use any child labor in the supply chain. Yeah. So technically, it's actually for, uh, possible to trace the forced labor. But the problem, of course, is that you would need uh, every step on the way, all the suppliers in the supply chain to actually verify that they didn't use forced labor and that uh, the Chinese government could actually get in the way and say that you're not allowed to participate in this program. Right. Otherwise, you're out of the Chinese market. So it's hard there even. It doesn't give us a lot of the options aren't strong options. And it seems as though the Chinese have taken an upper hand in a lot of the positions that, in effect, our relationship with them. What will the Chinese-American relationship look like two years from now? How, how is it going to evolve over the next two years? I think it depends a lot on what the U.S. side will be doing. It doesn't really depend a lot on what the Chinese government will be doing. Because right. We know pretty well what they are going to be. And they're going to stick to the plan. They stick to their plan, right? <laughs> Right. So, so one side of the equation is all fixed. But the, the challenge is the variables are all on the, the American side, what sure. exactly this U.S. administration is going to do. And I think it's from that perspective, it's really concerning me because I don't think the current administration has wrapped its head around how to approach China. And all, there are a lot of China policies left over from the previous administration. They're all under some sort of reviews by the, the Biden team, and they still haven't come up with anything. I actually doubt that whether they actually have an effective strategy because why else would you need to review the previous administration policy for so long? Cause, because, you know, last time I checked, President Biden ran against former President Trump for, you know, in the campaign, right? So yeah. you no, that, almost everything else that President Trump did, he reversed, right? He didn't, on day one, he got rid of immigration. He did, so it wasn't like they didn't have a plan for those other things. Why do you think he's cogitating and slowed down the China decision-making? I think the challenge I see is that the state-level actors probably in this kind of issues is ineffective no matter how you slice the case. Yep. Because when we talk about forced labor, right, when government actors, they come together and try to deal with these issues, it's not only the human rights issues are the only thing on their mind. There are also economic concerns legitimately and there are other strategic concerns. Sure. Right. But if you look back at the Carter administration, it's actually very soft on South Africa uh, during the apartheid regime. And precisely because of the economic concerns and all these uh, diamonds and, and whatnot in uh, South Africa that are attractive to U.S. and its allies. And right. so sometimes you turn a blind eye. And uh, I, I think at the government level, actors, it's in, to some extent understandable. And so the problem for policymakers, I think the transparency that I refer to that's needed, for example, in, uh, when it comes to forced labor, to understand exactly whether certain good we see in Walmart is using forced labor. It doesn't really have a lot to do with government policy. I think the transparency could be provided with other technologies. And so maybe that's where the current administration is hesitating because I just don't see that many tools in their toolbox that could be effective. Yeah, that's uh, what a lot of people I talked to today say. Will Taiwan still be free two years from now in your judgment? I think it depends on the whether the U.S. can demonstrate the commitment to defend Taiwan. I think the only I actually wrote wrote about this a uh, couple of months ago on the Examiner. You did. Basically, yeah. said uh, the only path to have peace in the Taiwan Strait is actually for the U.S. to commit uh, to defending Taiwan should China in, invade the island, because China has long believed for decades now that uh, one country cannot have two systems. It failed in Tibet, actually, right. was the first experiment of some sort of one country, two system. And we know very well now that it didn't go well in Hong Kong. Right. And so 
Taiwan is a problem from the Chinese perspective because it's a free country. It has uh, freedom, economic freedom and political freedom. And so I think it's clear that the Chinese intention over there is to reunite Taiwan. And so whether we could actually have peace in the Taiwan Strait is actually requiring a U.S. commitment to defend Taiwan. And that's the only way, I think, to maintain the status quo. Yeah, such an important thing. We're going to find out America's uh, willingness in light of what happened in Afghanistan, the the messy exit that we clearly effectuated there. What uh, does China do? Uh, there are really two things. First off, do our allies like Taiwan now doubt our resolve a little bit given the way we exit? And then two, does China's already large monopoly in the rare earth metals market become much larger because they'll have access to the Afghan lithium and other things. Are those two dynamics that are going to be sub-consequences from the withdrawal of Afghanistan? So let me answer your second question first. Sure. Uh, it's the, there's a lot of discussions about China eyeing the rare earth mineral and other minerals in Afghanistan. I think it's possible. It's very hard to extract all these resources in Afghanistan because that country really lacks the very basic order and security and safety yeah. even. Or infrastructure. That's why we didn't. That's why the America didn't really get it developed very much in the 20 years we were there. It's just hard outside of the big cities to have any security, right? Exactly. And now it's going to be way worse now, yeah. right? unless China actively provides security, right? Which I don't think China is very good at anyway. And in terms of the U.S., though, also that we talk about the Chinese dominance in rare earth, but actually the U.S. is well on its way to regain some uh, rare earth and mineral independence from China. Because now there are a lot of companies raising to use technologies to mine those minerals in a way that's environment friendly. Yeah. Uh, which means that, you know, the U.S. actually has a lot of uh, research. We did not mine them a lot because it damaged the environment a whole lot. So that's why we source it from elsewhere. But if there are technology, green technologies that can allow us to do that domestically, that would actually relieve the U.S. from the dependence on China. In this situation, we find ourselves now in the sort of the last moments of the 20-year war. There's always a geopolitical analysis that goes on. And so if you're Great Britain or you're Taiwan or you're Germany or whoever, what does the alliances that we've had for so long, NATO and Taiwan particularly, how are those alliances going to morph in the aftermath of the war on terror or certainly the war ending in Afghanistan? I see... uh it's very uh, likely that some countries that you for 20 years have been sort of in the middle between the U.S. and China will have to eventually pick a side. Yep. Because I don't think the Chinese model and the uh, capitalist, the Western model that has been dominating are compatible. We know that China is not going to change its mind. And so at some point, I think countries in the middle, including, you know, for example, North, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, they are going to have to pick a side whether you are going in for the plenty in China, meaning the trade right. and um, all this economic interest, versus security, which is uh, uh, enhanced the alliance with uh, the U.S. And so I think the redrawing of the map, uh, the world map, I think might be very likely in the next few years. Yeah. And there's a lot to be keeping a close eye on. There is. This is an extraordinary moment. And, you know, we've been basically in the Cold War alliance posture for maybe 50 to 67 years obviously there's been adjustments and movements of war and terror created some of them but this is a moment where realignment seems like more of a reality and and that the status quo won't be the status quo there's going to be change dr shang how do people follow the good work you're doing how do they get in touch with the policy change index and see in real time the extraordinary work you're doing Uh, sure so anyone who's interested in the policy change index the best way 
is to go on our website. It's policychangeindex.org, where you can find everything that we do with this open source project, including you can actually download our data for your research purposes as well. And uh, other work of mine uh, can also be found at mercatus.org. Thank you for having me, John. Oh, no. it was an honor. This is such an important discussion. I felt like I took away a lot from it. Really, really grateful, and I hope to get you back on soon. Thank you, John. Thank you, sir. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up for the day. But first, some, uh, a word from our great advertisers and sponsors. Folks, everyone knows the next medical crisis is just around the corner, whether it comes in the form of a pandemic or something much more mundane like a tick bike. You and your family need to be prepared. That's what we learned from this last pandemic, right? That's where the wellness company comes in. You know the wellness company. We have their great doctors like Dr. Peter McCullough on all the time on our shows. The wellness company and their doctors are medical professionals that you can trust. And the new medical emergency kits are the gold standard when it comes to keeping you safe and healthy, and most importantly, prepared. Be ready for anything. This medical emergency kit contains an assortment of life-saving medications, including ivermectin and z The medical emergency kit provides a guidebook to aid in the safe use of all of these life-saving medications. So you know what you're doing. From anthrax to tick bites to COVID and even the bioweapon like the plague, the wellness company's medical emergency kit is exactly what you need to have on hand to be prepared. Rest assured knowing that you have emergency antibiotics, antivirals, and antiparasitics on hand to keep you and your family safe from whatever the globalists throw your way. Go to www.twchealth/justnews today in order. That's twc.health/justnews and use the promo code justnews to save 10%. All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. It is time to wrap it up. Let's go forth and have a long three-day weekend. Yes, Labor Day weekend. A chance to celebrate all of those who work to make America work, to make America move and grow. To all the workers, you have my salute. To all the union workers, way to go. And to all of those healthcare workers and first responders, the men in blue, the firefighters, the paramedics who did so much this last 15 months to keep us alive and well in the midst of the worst global pandemic in world history. I want to thank you particularly, nurses, doctors, officers, paramedics, firefighters. We got your back because you've had our back. Thank you. Thank you. And again, thank you. We are deeply grateful for the sacrifices, the courage, the compassion that you have shown a nation in the grips of a terrible sickness. We are going to go to that weekend. May God bless you, and may God bless the United States of America, as he always has. You've been listening to John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. Hey, folks, have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower your risk of cancer. Think about that for a second. That's really important. Hopefully, you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. But if you're like me, you probably don't have the time to do that, right? So maybe you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. I take it every day. Sometimes I put it in a shake. Sometimes I put it in my egg white omelet in the morning. Field of Greens 
can help prevent, treat, and cure cancer? No, but it can powerfully help you audit your next checkup. Your doctor will notice your improved health or you're going to get your money back. Here's the most amazing thing about it. I started using Field of Greens a year ago. My cholesterol is down. My blood sugar is down. My weight's down. My health is up. My sleeping patterns are better. My metabolism is up. If you want to experience what I've experienced, go check out Field of Greens. Jump into the ring here. You're going to get an enormous benefit. And it's so simple. Single scoop, a couple of seconds, healthy lifestyle all day long. Now, thanks to our good friends at Brickhouse Nutrition, Field of Greens is going to give you a 15% off discount plus free rush shipping. All you got to do is go to fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS for your discount. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Fieldofgreens.com, promo code JUSTNEWS. Go check it out. Hey folks, can your IRA or 401k stand up to the next financial crisis that our top economists are saying is right at our doorstep? By allocating a percentage of your retirement into physical gold and silver with a tax-free rollover, you can diversify and safeguard your holdings from a turbulent market and economic downturns. All you got to do is put your IRA back on the gold standard. With a multi-trillion dollar trade deficit and ongoing geopolitical instability, experts say now is the time to make the switch. Find out how to safeguard your assets with a tax-free rollover with a Genesis Gold IRA, the only IRA that can hold physical precious metals. Protect your retirement today with one simple phone call and receive your free gold and silver guide from my good friends at Genesis Gold. To do that, call Genesis Gold Group today at 800 200 G-O-L-D, gold. That's 800-200-GOLD. And find out how you can add precious metals to your IRA. One more time, let me give you the number. It's 800-200-4653. 800-200-4653, gold. Or visit them at genesisgoldgroup.com. Genesis Gold, welcome to the John Solomon Just the News family. 